Support for Alleist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel, and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at laist.com slash events. Let me turn on my camera for one second. Oh, it in the room? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, don't know, I feel like I see them on Twitter all the time. I should at least get to know who they are. This is Paul Bay, one of the more prominent creators of fiction podcasts. He co-wrote the popular series The Black Tapes, which is one of the many podcasts being developed for television. He's done a lot of other things as well. But right now, he just wants to show me his dogs. Uh, the oldest black one is Monty. The, the tall, middle, tan one is Billy, and the young, crazy, pitbull one is Ella. Oh, man. Cute dogs, man. <laughs> yeah, Billy's right now in the studio with me, lying down, farting. So if you heard me, like, sniffling, it's the, the stench <laughs> that was threatened to wipe me out. But I'm like, I got I to gotta get through this for Nick. I, gotta, I can't pass out. I appreciate you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Paul is a genuinely nice guy. He's vibrant and approachable and earnest. And the fact that he's pretty willing to talk about his life is one of the many reasons he's developed a strong following. In the podcast world, he's also known for his work as the creator of The Big Loop and as the director of the fiction podcast series from Marvel called Marvels. Right now, he's working on two upcoming projects for Spotify. I just recently, um, in the last few years, realized uh, what my thing is. When people ask, what is your thing? I think it's always been, and my mom defined it for me, I've always been a storyteller. From the age of five, I'm the, I'm the kid who you, you know, would sit down on the grass and all the other kids would surround, and I'd tell a scary story. That was my first types of stories. That and jokes, which is, shouldn't surprise anyone because like a, hitting a story scary beat is the same as telling a punchline, right? It's mm. all surprise, and, and you build it up the same way. From LA Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. On this episode, we're going to talk about how a one-time preacher and stand-up comedian ended up being one of the more prolific creators of fiction podcasts. I'm the one who built haunted houses in our basements and charged the local kids to come walk through the haunted house <laughs> in, my, in my crawl space. So I was always like a like little enterprising kind of storyteller. I found a way to tell a story that mattered to me. So before it was a story about interpreting our world via God. And then when I lost my faith, it was just interpreting our world for young people and helping them navigate it. Hmm. Then it became helping people laugh at their pain <laughs> and laugh at a few dick jokes along the way. And then it became, well, let's sell something for me, but tell something about ghosts as metaphor for God at the same time. You know, that, hmm. that's in, in, in the TV stuff, everyone's noticing I have a thing that I'm always pitching, which I can't share right now because it'll give it away, but it's just telling stories in different mediums. I'm not tied to any medium. And I think that's, that explains it. And the breakdancing was just, you know, Nick, my body wants to tell a story, right? My body needs to, needs to, needs to, ah, that sounds so stupid. No, no, I got the laugh. I mean, like, you, you speak your truth, speak your truth. Paul was born in South Korea in 1969. When Canada adopted its Multiculturalism Act in 1971, his parents moved the family to Toronto. 
He says his work, regardless of the medium, is about interpreting the world as he sees it, whether he's seeing things as a Korean man, as a Canadian, or simply as a person grappling with existential anxiety. I have these anxiety attacks, to be honest, once in a while where I suddenly, I, I'm suddenly reminded this is all going to end. So there's an episode of Big Loop called You, which I don't recommend during the pandemic. It's, it's quite depressing. But that came out of me several years ago, sitting with my, uh, at the time, girlfriend, sitting next to her and thinking, wow, I'm really lucky. I came out of my divorce. I used to be really depressed. I was on borderline alcoholic, but now look at me. My life is totally turned around. I'm, I'm so fucking happy. I'm so fucking lucky. It sucks that this is all going to end. Hmm. Right? And so I remember thinking that and looking at her and she goes, what's up? I'm like, I'm very sad that this is going to end one day. Uh, and, you know, and that went into that episode that, that I, could, I could sort of spill up my anxiety and hope people will listen to it. I'm hoping they'll say, yeah, I feel that too. There's nothing we can do about it. And it's fucking sucks and it's sad. It's depressing as fuck. But what are we going to do about it? And there's no answer for that. And that's what that episode was about. So the big loop is sort of like me pouring in that in different ways, into different characters, into different situations. The Big Loop is an anthology series that spans horror, science fiction, and dark comedy. Its tagline is, Stories of finite beings in an infinite universe. This clip is from an episode called The Promise, which tells the story of a Korean gangster. I grew up in Gwangju. I don't know where I was born. But the orphanage was in Gwangju. And my boss adopted me in Gwangju raised me with his family in Gwangju. Gwangju was my life. I asked him once why he adopted me. Out of the hundreds of orphans, why me? And he said, He said, your hands. You had the hands of a killer. The black tapes became my commercial thing. The big loop became my uh, personal journal to put into story format, but I had a business plan for the Big Loop too. You know, I, I, it wasn't just all, I had a few commercial stuff in there to make sure someone might buy it. Yeah. So that experience or, or that um, psychology of yours, you know, to take things uh, not for granted, but also just to sort of like kind of stick to the moment. Do, do you feel like that has prepared you for a life in the film and television business? Like, I, I you know, there's this, it's one of the greater stereotypes and mythologies about Hollywood is that it's a brutal, brutal brutal business. Do you think that you feel like your experiences kind of prepares you for that kind of life? Yes, I, I, I definitely do. I, th I think uh, what happens is because, uh, you know, everyone always talks about, you know, just make sure they like you. The chances are people aren't going to like your pitch. They'll invite you in, they won't like the pitch, move on. And, and people always say, make sure they like you. I didn't understand why. And what, the one that ended up buying my most recent series, that network, that was my fifth pitch to them. And I realized, oh, they, they, they like me. Then I started realizing, oh, they like being around me. And then the, the people I do the notes call with, they, they tend to save me for the end of the day. I don't like being at the end of the day because everyone's tired. Hmm. Uh, but they, they confess to me they like it at the end of the day because they, they say I lift up everyone in the room. That makes everyone happy. Because uh, <laughs> I never fight about the notes. We've, I'm very collaborative. And I realize, I, and I'm starting to realize, I bring a lot of joy. I think I exude a lot of like, everyone's trying their best to make this thing work. Everyone's hmm. doing their best coming from their different angles. And I'm just happy everyone's, fucking here talking about my thing right like i never forget that like yeah. i'm just i'm really happy when in the beginning the middle at the end and i never maybe because i'm old enough i, I don't i don't take it for granted because i don't want I, the last thing i want is for me to keel over with a heart attack tomorrow and my last memory is of me getting to a fight with an executive yesterday right mm. that'd be that'd be an awful way to go paul says he's still considered a newcomer when it comes to television nevertheless 
he's at the table, and his work has an actual shot at reaching a screen. And he's not the only one. So why are film and television studios so interested in podcasters right now? I have two reasons for that, and uh, one sort of a jokey reason, but I think I think it's real. Uh, the first jokey reason <laughs> is that podcasts are easier to consume for assistance. Because what happens is, like, the black tapes was discovered by my manager's assistant, Chad. He was hmm. driving one day, and he he heard about it through a party. Then he's driving on the way to work, and his assistants are so busy, and he just listened to it, and he's like, "Wow!" And he fell in love with it. Then he told his his boss about it. If it was a novel, I don't think he would have had the time to read that thing. Like everyone mm. in Hollywood drives all day and they're stuck in traffic. I think they spend about two, at least two hours a day. So podcasts are the easiest way to consume it. And it sounds ridiculous that an industry is being formed because of the no, way No, I believe commute. it, man. I believe it. Like stuff yeah, has been yeah. formed for much less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I, I think that's a real reason, though people tend to laugh when I say it. But that's, I think that's yeah. a real factor. And Wait, have, other- you, have you met Chad? Yes, I have. Yeah, I kept hugging him. I felt really weird because I was yeah. so grateful. Yeah. I kept hugging Wait, tell him me about Chad. Him. Tell me about Chad. Like, what's his deal? He, he, <laughs> he's he's moved on to something else, another business. I I got to I got to catch up with him. But it's he's a guy that we oh, I I'm so so grateful for. And then to actually have him hand our thing over to Guyman, who ended up being my manager. That's that's a big deal. And that's happened through for other stuff. It's always an assistant that's, yeah. that's discovering stuff and then passing it up. And they're doing that with podcasts. Everyone's listening to, and they're young and they're all, the, the, your exact demographic for podcast consuming. So I think yeah. that's the, that's the one thing. Shout out uh, to the assistants. They should be unionizing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the, that's the assistant side. The, the reason it gets fed up the chain, but the reason it's actually circulating around Hollywood is Hollywood is what I've learned. You know, you always see the stereotype. It's like, What's big this year? Meteors. Okay, everyone's going to do a meteor movie or a comet, mm. earth destruction movie or dinosaurs. It is very buzzy and, yeah. and trends happen. So I'm hoping this is not a trend, but it could be. I don't know, right? Like novels are still being adapted. Short stories are still being adapted. Hmm. People from social media, like with these Twitter threads, they're being once in a while picked up. And I think podcasts, as long as the quality stays high, mm-hmm. they'll keep at it. They'll keep searching podcasts for new material. So uh, I think this speaks to a secondary trend that's been happening in the podcast business lately. I think I'm seeing a lot of people using the medium as a place to like test intellectual property explicitly. And I feel like I've listened to a lot of podcasts these days that feel like spec scripts. Is that something that you're seeing? And uh, do, do you find that frustrating? Um, it's a definite trend. Uh, it's an, it's a, it's a, it's it's because I've, I've had meetings with some of the company, the big ones, and they are like, okay, we see, and they basically told me, we see this as a cheap way hmm. to test our properties. We have like 20 movie ideas. And then I tell them how much it costs, how much I, I could do it for. Like you could do a whole series for the cost of a pilot, hmm. right? And, and gain a user base. Like <laughs> bring them over to the, from the IP, the podcast over to TV or, or film. Yeah. So I know that's real. What's happening, uh, and it's no secret, you've written about this, mm-hmm. is that, you know, the, these podcasts are being... I've always used, described audio fiction as like a loss leader. Whenever I went into these meetings, I'm like, you know, you realize you're not going to make money off this. You're spending money to advertise the thing it's going to become in your mind, hmm. like your movie or your, or your TV series. And it's very rare that a podcast can make enough money that an executive will be happy. That like, is very it's, true. Yeah. It's enough for me to be happy, but not somebody who's used to millions of dollars. So yeah. I always warn them about that. And so I don't get frustrated so much. I've been spending not a lot of time, but I'm spending... Any free time I have devoted to helping indie creators that I know and I'm, I'm not really friends with, but I'm, I'm getting closer to that I've always yeah. been a sort of a, a sideline fan of. And I'll reach out to them and say, hey, do you have representation? And they're like, no, or they have one, but they're not doing anything. And I'm like, then I'll contact my person. I'm like, hey, I send them the link to yeah. their show. I go, let me know if you want them. 
And then I know at least one of them got signed. Another one I helped with negotiations with a big company and they just yeah. signed a sweet deal. So that's the way I, I don't get frustrated. I'm like, okay, this is a reality. People are coming in and I've talked with showrunners on Zoom helping them make audio drama because we've become friends and they're like, hey, Paul, we can't do our TV production. Can you teach me how to do audio drama? <laughs> and, like, and, you know, and, it's, 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 and they're really good at, you know, they, they provide me, like if I ever become a showrunner, they're like, here's what you need to know, Paul, about the business. So yeah. they help me too. And so like... Well, tell me a bit about, more about that. Like, it sounds like, so you're saying that uh, in the pandemic, now that everybody's shut down, there, there is, like you're seeing like showrunners, television showrunners, not trying to make fiction podcasts. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, because they're realizing, you know, it's, it's unless you're a mega showrunner or mm-hmm. producer, it's really hard to pitch an original series that came out of your head yeah. without any IP. Even th- they're having problems. It's, it's like everyone jokes about it. Everyone talks about it among TV writers, especially. They're like, yeah, they, they want the IP. Even yeah. if they don't read it, they won't read it. They, won't li- they just need to know it's out there. And so they see podcasts as a way to do it. I haven't seen any of them yet. The ones I've talked to take the serious steps to do it. They just want to mm-hmm. know, like, what does it involve? How much money am I going to have to spend? Who will I have to hire? So they, and they always do it respectfully. So I don't want people thinking, yeah, these, these guys coming into our territory. Because I'm someone that did that. I used the space of audio drama to turn our screenplay into another medium hmm. and happen to fall in love with audio drama in the process. An evangelist of a different kind. More on Hollywood and podcasting and the audition that changed Paul's life in a minute. Support comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years showcasing Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, featuring over 200 works ranging from narrative film, documentary films, photo exhibits, and new media. VC Film Fest honors our beloved elder cultural workers, linking them to present and emerging artists to empower communities and challenge perspectives. May 1st through 10th in Little Tokyo and in Long Beach. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events. What are the differences between writing for the screen and writing for the ear? Oh, okay. So for this one is very specific. I have I have a secret that it's not really a secret, but I have a tactic. <laughs> I have a technique for writing audio drama, like the, a very literal tech, uh, specific technique. When I sit down to write audio drama, I make sure I have music in my head. It's not playing, but I have a piece of music in my head to drive the mood because everything I write for, like for example, Big Loop, music is so important to the Big Loop. Sometimes I don't have, I have an idea, but I don't know how it's going to go until I find the song that's going to end it. Like for example, um. Children of God, that one. I knew I wanted to tell a story about a man struggling with his faith because of his child that is only a head, right? Like it's just, it's just so abysmal and so hope crushing and so nightmarish. You know how you see Christian talk about God answering prayers? I, I used to talk like that too, but during that time, I realized God might answer your prayer in action. 
and you might hear him, but not literally, you know, but in the result of prayer. But, but you never really hear a voice, you know. It's not his voice. Sure, you hear the voice of other Christian interpreting God for you, telling you what God intends for you, for the baby, but... It's not like God goes, child, this is God. The, the reason I'm giving you this child is because it's a test of your faith, etc. It's never a voice. We just say it is to, to fill the silence. Because the truth is, God doesn't speak that way. And it makes you think, like Job, it makes you think, what the hell are you doing, God? What are you doing to me, a faithful servant, uh, a servant of God? I was really struggling. How do you tell this fucking story? I, I'm not, I'm not Cronenberg. I'm not as skilled as him in that kind of macabre storytelling. Then this this band from Sweden that I love, Tuve, they had this song called "The River," and I was just, I, I heard it. I'm like, that's the feeling. That's the feeling of of throwing it away, your logic, and just going with faith, and just hoping the universe rewards you for being a good person. And so the whole thing I wrote with that music in my head, and the way they talk, and the way. The narration went. Like, everything about that was driving towards that song. So a lot of people have noticed that Big Loop, when you end an episode, you have these feelings and the song allows you to sit in those feelings. It's because I'm writing towards that song at the end. So it starts as audio. For when I'm writing TV, it's all visual. I'm, I'm thinking of what do they look like? What, what are they walking through? What, what is their home? Like, it's entirely visual. So it's, it's a different way of writing. And I notice on the script, because I do that, the TV version has more uh, description in the scenes where the audio version has none. It's just people talking. So uh, let's focus in on what you're working on podcast-wise these days. Um, you've got two shows with Spotify. One is a Black Tapes for Teens, essentially. And the other one's about a K-pop group, uh, which is, you know, one of the more interesting things that's <laughs> crossed over into the West in 2020. Of course, as uh, Asian folks, we've been very aware it is for a while. Uh, <laughs> tell me about these projects. Yeah, uh, so Amanda Amanda Chi and the Ghost Sessions. I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to tell, but it's basically what the, what the trades were saying. is like It's a young girl, a Korean Indo-American girl, who sort of has to navigate her way through a new high school while learning of a new power, which is she can see ghosts and interact with spirits. It sort of becomes like this crossover between a whole bunch of like Veronica Mars and, and, and I guess Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh-huh. And then the K-pop one was based off of, a, I have a friend who was the lead singer in one of Korea's first K-pop groups. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's a crazy story. Uh, his name, I, uh, I'll say, his name's Sean. I don't want to say the name of the group, but K-pop fans who know history will know who this is. He's, he's back in Canada. He's a realtor now, but he went through a crazy experience in K-pop stardom before there was K-pop, before the country started putting their muscle behind the music industry and the entertainment yeah, industry. Yeah, it's, it's a real state effort. Like, it was, it's wild how, like, K-pop is a state creation. A yeah, and it was just before that. Like, he's the one that, he's one of the ones that made Koreans realize, oh, this could be something we could invest in and take out there. He was, anyways, his, his story was just insane. And I remember him sharing it with me one night, and I'm like, do you mind if I take this part of the story and turn it into an audio fiction? You come on, and then he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I didn't use it. It just felt sort of weird using too much of his story for uh, something that's going to be out in public. Like, mm. So I changed it all up. But, but the idea of, of someone's ascendant career in Korea brought up other things that I was personally struggling with mm. and uh, that I've personally seen having grown up in the Korean church. So I want to tackle those issues. So I thought, well, this is a good way to do it. And I get to maybe meet some cool K-pop stars while doing it. Okay, so um, I'm generally hesitating to ask this question because I feel like it might be a little self-indulgent. 
but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> uh, how has your, like, Korean-ness slash Asian-ness uh, informed your experience in the entertainment business? Oh, it's, it's, it's been totally shaped by it. Like a lot of kids who grew up in the 70s and the 80s, you know, there was only a limited amount of media you could consume. Hmm. So I, I grew up watching, I grew up wishing I was white, basically. Uh, all my heroes were white until Bruce Lee came. Right? Like before, yeah, I, was, I, wanted, I wanted to be $6 million man. I wanted to be, there was no Asians to look at. Right? I, I just wanted to be something that I consumed. I never saw me on the screen. You hear the story all the mm. time. And then when I was acting, I remember I got so sick of some of the roles I was getting. This one time, I don't mind saying this, there was a very well-known TV show. And my agent said, hey, they want you to be a pizza delivery boy. But you don't have to say anything. Just practice react, reacting to something terrible. I'm like, okay. So I just practiced my reactions. Oh, oh shit, in a mirror. <laughs> Showed up and it was all Asian dudes. And I'm like, well, oh, that's really interesting. They wanted, they have the heart set on an Asian guy delivering this pizza. And then the casting director's assistant came out to our, the room and said, okay, guys, but there's a slight change to the character. It's no longer pizza delivery guy. It's Chinese takeout guy. But you, you guys probably all figured that out. And I remember looking at all the other dudes in the room and I, I could tell right away, none of us had figured that out. Like none of us had assumed hmm. that. And it was so insulting. And I felt so, not hurt, but angry that at that age, I have to debase myself and sit in a room with, with other guys trying their best to achieve their dreams and just sort of being tossed away these assumptions. Hmm. And so I thought, you know what? I, I need to be on the other side of that camera. I'm, I'm fucking sick of this. I, I need to be on the other side writing stories for people like me. Hmm. So that's when, and I was already writing screenplays, but this is when I really started a focused effort in systemically building my skills to realistically get something sold. Hmm. Last question, um, and I want to stick with the entertainment industry angle a little longer. Um, so I think I personally grapple with feeling a little bit weird about the representational politics of Asians in Hollywood. I mean, like, it's it's fine if we get more, like, crazy rich Asians or, you know, X genre movie, but with Asian leads. Uh, but I wonder, like, how far that's actually going to get us because, you know, we're, we're still not talking about Asian people actually being you know, owners of studios or, you know, or having any structural power or anything like that. I'm curious if you have any uh, thoughts about that. Yeah, I think, I think it's good to, to go on several tracks. So I like us having, uh, and I say us, <laughs> like, you know, like I, it's, it's people that look <laughs> no, like no, it's, us. It's just, it's just yellow people here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like people that look like us sort of like finally getting some power and control in an industry that has historically not allowed people that look like us to have the, those things. I like that. So I like those movies for that purpose and, I, and for entertainment. But I also think it's important for like movies like with, with um, like the Alice Wu making the smaller movies, like the more intimate, mm. very personal movies. And it's not that they said, okay, let's, let's reverse engineer this genre and put all our, our Asian friends in it. It's not that. She, she just went, this is my life. Right. This is or the farewell. That one. This is this hmm. is me. This is uh, like more personal stories. I think we can do both and everything in between. I think it's really important because you know it's always, it's always like one for them, one for me. Right. One to yeah. make the money. One to use that money to finance the thing I really want to make. Yeah. Uh, but if we can do both simultaneously, that's good for everybody. And it's good to see people like Randall and Daniel Day Kim. You know, really like opening up their own production companies, telling Asian, like basically doing what Jordan Peele is doing. He. And he's not just, you know, he's, he's telling a history of the black experience in America using a very familiar genre and just turning it on its head. And I would like to see us doing that kind of thing, mm. being super inventive, but, you know, encouraging each other and giving each other the resources to do that. 
Paul, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. This has been awesome. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwok. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Jessica Elpert and John Parati at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Christian Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Elias Studios. LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.